The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. And take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the letter of 1 John, chapter 2. We're really just going to be looking at one verse this morning. Uh, in this passage, we've been walking through the letter of 1 John, and man, it's so rich. I, I uh, reflect on when I was a dad, well, I'm still a dad, but when I was raising my kids, and by the way, I, I went down a little bit too deep in the water, and, um, but when I was raising my kids, I can remember a lot of times, I think my bark was a lot worse than my bite. They may have a different remembrance of that. Uh, but as a dad, you know, sometimes your cup just kind of gets full and man, you really got to come down on your kids, right? Anybody relate to that? Uh, where it just has to happen and y'all all know that sometimes it just has to happen, right? And so, but I would do that and I would exercise discipline to my kids, but really being soft-hearted, I, 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 it, it honestly did hurt me more than it hurt them. And so I would always want to, though, reaffirm to them my love. And the fact that dad had to carry out discipline in this, but I want you to know that dad loves you and dad has forgiven you for what you've done and I would embrace them in that. And I kind of get the idea that John might be doing the same thing in this letter as he gets to verse 12 in chapter 2 where he writes and he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. If you remember early on in the chapter when, when John's writing to him, he says, hey man, one of the evidence that, that you know that you are in Christ, that you've trusted Christ, that you've been born again, is that you're going to be obedient to his commands. But sometimes you won't be obedient, and you've got to remember that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and we can be restored back to that. And then John goes on to say that, that the greatest way that we know that we are his is that if we obey that old new command that we're to love others as God has loved us. And if we're walking in that, then we know that we're his. And evidently there were some maybe that were not walking in that because he pointedly tells them, listen, some of you are professing to be Christ followers, but you're hate, you hate your brother. And I'm telling you, if, if you hate your brother, then, man, you're a liar and the truth is not in you and you're not in him because there's a change that takes place that, that God enables us to love those who are even unlovable. And he says, listen, the way that you know that you're walking in this truth is that you have love for your brother and for your sister. And, and John kind of pulls back after he's uh, really gotten on to him to some degree. And he says, but listen, the most important thing, I want you to know that your sins are forgiven. Somebody needs to hear that this morning, that your sins are forgiven. If you've trusted Christ and you've trusted what he has done for you, you can know that your sins are forgiven. The thing about it, when, when John writes this, he writes this in the past tense. In other words, your sins have been forgiven and, and they are done away with. The way that we might phrase this, the way that he said it would be, your sins have been once and for all forgiven and will never be brought up again before God. Isn't that good to hear? You see, there's some of us here this morning that, that we have practiced some things in our past, maybe before we came to know Christ, that we're too ashamed to even admit or talk about in a public setting, right? Maybe we've not even shared them with the closest person that we have in our life, it may be a spouse, or because we're so ashamed of it, but God wants you to know this morning that 
No matter how horrendous that sin may have been, if you've trusted Christ, you are forgiven of that sin. Isn't that good news? This uh, last couple of months ago, if you remember the story that came out in the West, I can't remember where it was exactly, but there was a female police officer, and she went into the home of the apartment that she thought was her apartment, and when she got in there, she was surprised because there was a young man there sitting, and I think he was eating pizza. She thought he was an intruder, and her defense was, I, 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 I felt threatened, and so she shot and killed this young man who was sitting in her apartment. Well, it got a lot of media exposure. She was prior police officer. Uh, she was a white lady. He was a black young man. And so you had all the, the media that surrounds that kind of thing. But I find it interesting as she went to trial, she was convicted of murder. And she was sentenced. And at the end of her sentence, the judge who was there in that courtroom called her to the stand and gave her a Bible. Do you remember that? And there were a lot of people that were upset that, how, why is this judge giving this lady a Bible? You know, there's a whole separation of church and state thing. Let me tell you, I'm glad that we have some on the bench who hold to the Word of God as judges, right? But the, the real amazing thing was after that, immediately the brother of this young man who had been shot and killed came out and publicly announced on all of the media, the very first thing that he stated was to that woman who had shot and killed his brother, I forgive you. We say, how in the world could you do that? This guy's a believer. He follows Christ and he trusts Christ. But can I tell you the most liberating three words that we can hear and the most liberating three words that we can express to someone else is, I forgive you. When my kids were little again, occasionally they got into sibling fights. I know none of your kids, they were all perfect kids. They didn't do that. But they would get in fights with each other, and I would, as a dad, intervene, and I would exercise discipline in that. And it didn't matter to me who started it or who, who finished it, because both of them were culpable and responsible, and they hated this. I would make them look at each other after they had admitted their wrong, and I would make them look at the other one and say, I forgive you. The worst part, my daughter just said. Now, whether or not they meant that, I'm not sure. I think most of the time they didn't. But I think it was, I thought it was very important for them to know that the Bible teaches us that Christ has forgiven us. And the Bible teaches us that we are to forgive one another. And so it's important as we model that to our children and we model it to one another in the body of Christ that we express that, I forgive you. And somebody asked, is it, is it okay to express I forgive you even? if the other person hasn't acknowledged, absolutely it is. You see, we don't forgive because there's been confession. We forgive because Christ has forgiven us and he has called us to exercise that forgiveness. And can I tell you what forgiveness does? You see, when we receive forgiveness from somebody else, it releases us from the guilt and the binding of what we know we have done wrong. And we know there's something there between us. But when the person extends those words of mercy and says, I forgive you, there is a liberation that takes place. Can I say amen to that? Amen. And the other thing is, is that when I am extending that to someone, even though they may not deserve my forgiveness, even though they may not have admitted their fault, if I 
tell them that I forgive them, the other thing it does, it frees me now and allows God's grace to operate freely in my life. This last week as I was prepared for this message, there was somebody that came to my mind who years ago had hurt me in a horrendous fashion and way. And I suffered a lot as a result of it. Nothing on my own, everything that they had done. And I tell you, I will never ever, unless they have a real change of heart. I will never hear that individual say, I wronged you. But this week, it came up in my mind as I'm preparing this and thinking about our sins being forgiven by him and him desiring for us to forgive others of their sins. Although I was not talking to that person individually, I just had to sit there and say, blank, I forgive you. You see, there's a release and there's a freedom that comes in that. And John's writing, and he wants us to know and understand, listen, more than anything, know this, know this with certainty, that your sins are forgiven. Now, we have an adversary, don't we? We have an enemy, the Satan, who likes to come against us. And one of the ways that we find that he operates very often in our lives is causing us to have the sense that God has not or will not, or how can he possibly forgive this one thing that I have done? And it may be that it's something that's so horrendous, again, you're ashamed to even speak of it, or it may be something that a pattern has developed in your life as a Christ follower, and you're like, man, I'm professing one thing, but I'm living in this. Listen, the enemy does not want you to come before the Father boldly before his throne to receive mercy and help, which is a throne of grace in your time of need. And he'll do everything he can in his power to try to keep you from receiving the forgiveness of God through Christ that has already been appropriated for you. You with me on this? It's such a freeing thing and in the Christian's life to understand and know that we are absolutely forgiven is a victory in our life that we might more appropriate God's grace and it enables us to be obedient to a far greater degree in every area of our life. Let me use another illustration to try to bring this home. When my kids uh, had done something that would have violated one of the house rules or what have you, I could almost intuitively always tell when they had done something. I may not know what it was or what it is, but I could tell that they had done something. In other words, you, you just can't get it past dad, right? There would be a distance that they would have. They wouldn't linger out and hang in the room and talk to me very long for fear that I might ask a question or they may divulge the information that would get them in trouble. And I knew that there was that separation that was there. You see, it's the same way in the believer's life. When we have something that we know that God just desires for us to confess to him, the longer we linger and we do not confess, the further that distance and fellowship gets from him. And he desires that we remain and be in fellowship with him as John has already written. And so he wants us to know your sins are forgiven. Now let me dispel a couple of ideas and thoughts here. Sometimes we get the idea that we're forgiven because of the wrong reasons. Let me say how we're not forgiven. Our forgiveness with God is not based on our performance as a Christian or a Christ follower. 
You see, God's not sitting up there and saying, you know, I will forgive them if they do enough Hail Marys, or I'll, I'll forgive them if they give enough, or I'll forgive them if they do the right kind of Bible study, or I'll forgive them if they perform this way and not that way. No, God's forgiveness is based solely on what Jesus has done for us in that his eternal blood was shed as a payment for our sins. You see, John reminds them earlier in the chapter, listen, when, when you are, are there before the throne, maybe not present, but in that sense, and, and the accuser comes to accuse you and accuse you of even what's right, he knows that you sinned, he knows that you did that, and he comes before the Father, the throne, and he says, hey, so-and-so has done so-and-so. Jesus stands up as our advocate and says, yes, he's guilty. But I have paid the price and penalty for his freedom. Isn't that great? I know he deserves punishment, but can I remind you, Father, that I became a sacrifice for him or for her. I became their propitiation where your wrath was poured out on me when it should have been poured out on them, and I've taken it all for them, and they are forgiven, and you no longer hold this against them. Isn't that good? Somebody needs to hear that this morning. That God has forgiven you if you've placed your trust and continued to place your trust in what Jesus has done for you and shed his blood as a payment for our sins. The second reason that our forgiveness is not based on other things is our forgiveness is not obtained by a certain church creed. Our forgiveness is not based on whether... Again, somebody follows in believer's baptism, right? Because the forgiveness has already taken place. That's a walk in obedience. Our forgiveness is not based on a creed that a church might quote every week or or something we might hang on our wall that's a creed or or what denomination we belong to or where we go to the church, if it's the in-church or the out-church or the cool church or the old church. Listen, our forgiveness is based solely, again, on what Jesus Christ has done for us. The third thing, our forgiveness rests solely in the name of whom we have placed our trust in. I want you to notice this. Look again what John writes in verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. For his name and through his name, your sins are forgiven. Now, to help us understand what John's writing here, what he's, what he's trying to bring home, is to kind of place ourselves back in a Jewish-Hebrew culture. In a, in a Hebrew culture, a name meant a lot. A name was a huge thing. Your name identified who you are, what you are for the rest of your life. As a matter of fact, we see in some instances in Scripture where an individual's name was changed once they had come to know Christ or an event had taken place in their life. Saul, who persecuted the church, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, was born again, and Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. You remember Cephas? One of the 12 disciples who later Jesus changed his name to Peter and said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And so God uses the name and the significance of that is to recognize that we are forgiven in his name because the name that he is identify his nature and character and the person that he is. 
Remember back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was out in the wilderness, you remember that story? And he looks off in a distance and he sees a burning bush and, and he's intrigued because this bush is not being consumed by the fire. So he goes to the bush and he hears a voice talking from the bush, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. Come to discover it was God manifest through the burning bush. And he says, Moses, I want you to go back down to Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so Moses debates with God why he should be the one to do this. And then he asks a question, God, if I go, this is Pharaoh, who am I going to tell? Yeah, right. Who am I going to tell him has told me to come? And he says, tell him I am that I am. Yahweh is what's written in the Hebrew. So Moses goes, eventually, you know the story, the plagues come, the children are delivered from bondage in Egypt, and, and God right away begins to perform miraculous events so that they might escape the pursuing army, parts the Red Sea, the Jordan, they walk over, they go out into the wilderness, they don't have any food, God provides, provides manna from heaven, they don't know where they're going, and God says, okay, I'll direct you with a cloud by day and a fire by night, you need water, Moses, strike the rock and get water, all all of these things Moses began to see, God in all of his splendor and power display. But I find it interesting that after Moses has experienced all of this with God, he asks God, God, will you show me your glory? Now, I don't know about you, but I think seeing all those things happen would have been enough to, to say, I see your glory. But Moses asked him, God, will you display your glory to me? And here's God's response. God says, I will make my name known to you. Look at what John writes here. Your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake or for his glory. You see, it's in his name and who he is is a reason that he has forgiven you and I of our sins. And so Moses is there with God on the mountain. God hides him in the cleft of the rock and he says, okay, Moses, I'm going to show you. And he passes by him, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet I do not leave the guilty on punishment. I punish the children of their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. And what I want us to see here is that God's forgiveness for us, God's forgiveness to us is not about us, but it's all about His glory. And John says, your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. That's why the Bible says that there's no other name given under heaven by which you must be saved or that you can be saved. Acts chapter 2 verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Calls on what? His name because his name is who he is, full of grace and mercy and long-suffering and forgiveness. Aren't you glad that he's the kind of God that he is? John 20 verse 31 John reminds us, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his what? In his name. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be said, saved. In Romans 10 verse 13, I love this one. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
It's not that there's something mystical or magical about the name of Jesus. But when we call on his name, we are calling on the person that he is. And the person that he is is why he is able to grant forgiveness because he is most glorified in the fact that he has forgiven us of our sins. Can anybody say amen to that? I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 138.2. God, you've exalted your name and your word above everything else. Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him who bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. How can we be so confident that he has forgiven us of our sins? Well, number one, because of what he has done on our behalf and not what we did to earn forgiveness. That it's based on what he has said, not on what we've imagined or what we've thought. Not on how we've performed. But the other reason that we can be so confident because his name is at stake if he does not forgive because he's proclaimed and pronounced forgiveness. So if he doesn't forgive, then he, he has no reputation that's worthy, right? But he has stated that it's in his name that there's forgiveness, and if we trust that, and so his reputation is on the line. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 25, verse 11. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David's concern wasn't that he would be forgiven, Primarily, his concern was the name of God and the sake of his name and the glory of God. And so when we confess our sins to him, when we acknowledge our fault and our wrong, listen, we are glorifying him because he is able to forgive and he's executed all of his just punishment on his son Jesus who shed his blood for our forgiveness. So it begs a question, then why is it that sometimes I'm so reluctant to approach him and confess? Why is it sometimes that you're reluctant to approach him and to confess? Well, one thing maybe that I'm trying to hold on to that, but the other thing might be that sometimes we're, there's, there's a pride there that says, I just can't acknowledge that I've done wrong. Listen, he already knows. But I'm not keeping it from him. He knows. He's just waiting for me to confess an agreement with him so that my fellowship will be restored to him once again. Boy, his love is so great for us. And when he exercises forgiveness and restores us back into fellowship, he is glorified and magnified in this. David also writes this in Psalm 79. He says, help us, O God, for the glory of your name, Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. You see, at the end of the day, it's, it's not about us. As, as, as a narcissistic, narcissistic generation, we don't like to hear that. And especially a narcissistic church generation, we don't like to hear that. Because we always hear, it is his love that extends to us and forgives us, but, but it's not for us. 
We, we benefit, don't we? We reciprocate in that from him, but it's for his glory that he has forgiven us of our sins and saved us, and to him alone belongs all glory. That's why there'll be that day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory. You see, we have victory in him. There's an old hymn that, that maybe some of you are not familiar with, but it's called Victory in Jesus. And the words go like this, I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory. He, he, he gave his life where on Calvary to save a well-deserving human being like me. No, to save a wretch like me. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me. I didn't find him, okay? He sought me and he saved me. Notice what John says in the next verse, 13. He goes on to write, he says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning, and I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. How have we overcome the evil one? By putting enough self-effort there, casting them down, casting them out, going against them in this? No. The way we have overcome the evil one is through the blood of the Lamb of God. You see, John reminds us in the Revelation that, that those saints there in heaven, he says, they have overcome him, the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. How have we overcome the second death? We're all going to face death, physical death, right? None of us get a pass on that. Methuselah did, but that was a long time ago. But there is a second death the Bible talks about, and that second death is where there's eternal condemnation and eternal punishment and damnation in a place, a real place called hell. But for the one that has trusted Christ and what he has done on their behalf, we've escaped that second death. Do we have an eternity in his presence forever and ever and ever? And that is how we have overcome the evil one. You see, James writes, and we deal with the evil one every day, don't we? We deal with the adversary, uh, although quite frankly, I'm not sure that I'm, <laughs> none of us are really well known enough to get the big guy ourselves, you know? But his little minions, his demons come. And James tells us that that. There's a simple factor there. We make it more complicated and sometimes more mystic than it is. As James says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will do what? You might remember? He'll flee from you. Now, see, there's that factor in there that's the key point. The key point is not resisting the devil. The key point is submitting ourselves to God. God, I'm, I'm yours. You're Lord of my life. You're the only one that deserves 
glory and praise and honor. You paid a price for me. God, I, you're my Lord now. I want to follow you. Yes, there are times where I don't. There are times where I mess up. But God, I, I want to follow you, your Lord in my life. I'm submitting my life to you. Temptation comes along, whether it's the flesh or the evil one. We resist him. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb has set us free. It's not only set us free for the forgiveness of sins, but it's set us free from the punishment of sin, and it's set us free from the dominion of sin. Thank God for that. Amen. See, that's why Paul could write, and we can echo what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, when he says this. He says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you glad this morning? As you've trusted Him, He's forgiven you of your sins, past, present, future. And there's absolutely nothing, not a, in Espanol, <laughs> nothing that can separate us from Him. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.